Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Lawson Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today, we're breaking down Hide and Seek, the penultimate episode of Season 2 of Star Trek Picard. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for Hide and Seek. Aboard La Serena with Dr. Teresa and Ricardo, Rios tries to keep the Borgati, the Borg Queen-dominated Gerardi, from accessing the transporter. However... Borgatti is able to override his efforts. She transports herself to the ship along with a group of assimilated and genetically enhanced paramilitary soldiers. Hmm. Miraculously, Rios is able to escape from the ship with Teresa and Ricardo. Using Talon's transporter, the Romulan, Picard, Rafi, and Seven beam to the grounds of the Chateau Picard. Shortly, they see a number of other assimilated soldiers stand in the way of them getting to the house. Picard starts to experience a series of flashbacks related to his parents and himself when he was a child. Team Picard uses weapons to fight their way to the house. As they do, Rios takes a bullet to the arm. Despite his protest, Picard has talent transport Rios, Teresa, and Ricardo to the Romulan's apartment. They decide to increase their chances of getting to the ship if they split up into two teams, Rafi with Seven and Picard with Talon. Aboard La Serena, the Borg Queen attempts to take over the ship, but Girardi still exerts some control over their actions. She tells the Borg Queen she has locked the ship's computer with a code she did not bother to memorize. She had also created an emergency combat hologram in the form of Elnor, who holds the encryption code within his subroutines. Wearing a mobile emitter, Elnor appears and immediately begins putting down the soldiers with their own weapons. He finds his sword and is able to use it to dispense with other soldiers. Sung appears in the chateau's courtyard with his mercenaries. He tells the crew to give up. He then readily admits that if he can stop the Europa mission, then he will be able to claim the future where he is hailed as a hero to humanity. Knowing he cannot acquiesce to Sung's demands, Picard takes talent into the dungeons where he and his mother used to play a game of hide-and-seek against his father's advice. Against all odds, Seven and Rafi make it back to La Serena. There, they meet up with Elnor, who readily informs them he is a hologram. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) He lets them know Girardi provided him with the key to unlocking the computer system. He grants Seven access to it, and she is able to rid the ship of the assimilated soldiers by transporting them into the stone walls of the chateau. While Seven is taking care of business, Rafi and Elnor have a sidebar concerning her guilt over Elnor's death. The hologram tells her he possesses the thoughts and feelings 
of Elnor up until the time he died. He eases her grief and guilt by saying Elnor only had love for her, not blame. The Boar Queen confronts them and initially they get the upper hand. However, she disarms and incapacitates Rafi, disables Elnor's mobile emitter, and impales Seven with one of her tentacles. While Seven is writhing on the floor in pain, Girardi reasons with the Borg Queen that the future will still prove unsatisfactory for her if she continues her course of action. She proposes the Borg should change its M.O. to one that works to bring together disenfranchised beings seeking a connection. Instead of fearing them, the Borg would be seen as an agent of salvation. The Borg Queen acquiesces and heals Seven the only way she knows how, by using nanoprobes which restore Seven's implants. The rehabilitated Girardi Borg Queen combo, or Borgati, <laughs> tells Seven and Rafi to inform Picard the Europa mission must not be postponed. For the mission to succeed, there must be two Rene Picards, one who lives and one who dies. Seven and and Rafi are beamed off the ship. La Serena takes off into the orbit to begin its new mission. While in the dungeon, Picard experiences another flashback in which his mother has been locked in a room. His mother calls out to young Picard, who unlocks the door and climbs in bed with her. When he awakens, he goes to the solarium where he sees his mother has hung herself. He now realized he had blocked this memory of the true circumstances of his mother's death. The elder Picard and Talon make it out of the dungeon and into the solarium. However, Sung and two of his soldiers confront them. Sung orders the soldiers to kill them, but Rios appears in time to vaporize one of the soldiers and disarm the other. Sung picks up the weapon, thinking he can shoot it, but Rios explains it will explode if one does not have the right DNA to use it. Sung throws it into the air and escapes. The Bacar team reunite on the chateau grounds and share information. They prepare for the task to ensure Sung is not able to stop the Europa mission from successfully completing its quest. Okay, now let's move on to the credits. Who's to blame for this script? <laughs> Hide and Seek was written by Matt Okumura and Chris Derrick. Direction was handled by Mike Weaver. Chris Derrick joined Star Trek Picard this season as a staff writer. This is his first on-screen credit. Prior to Picard, Chris has written stories for comic books, TV, and films about troubled men and women who battle themselves. The films he's written include Architects of Crime, F.U., Pay Me, and Stained Glass. All have been created with his brother, writer and director William A. Derrick III. Together, the Derrick brothers have shared achievements such as the Stella Adderall Award for Action in Film International Film Festival in 2020. 16, and the Jury Award for Best Short Film from the Hollywood Black Film Festival in 2007. 
Matt Okumura was brought on as an executive story editor for Picard this season. His other credits include serving as story editor on the Amazon Prime series Leverage Redemption and writing for Smallville. Okumura will also be a staff writer on the second season of the CBS action-adventure series Blood and Treasure. And finally, director Mike Weaver is primarily known as a cinematographer in TV. He's worked on such TV shows as Pushing Daisies, Parenthood, Californication, and Masters of Sex. Weaver has also developed a reputation as a director. He is known for his directing episodes of Parenthood, Californication, and Master of Sex. But he has also directed for The Mindy Project, Superstore, the miniseries Little Fires Everywhere, and Good Girls. He will return next week as the director of the series finale. Hmm. So let's turn to the analysis. Yeah, let's do that. Hide and Seek was structured similar to a video game. This made sense because the episode had a script crafted by two writers with an abundance of experience writing action. Also, this kept the events moving briskly, even while juggling four different plot threads and three groups of characters. For most of the running time, the episode resembled an attack mission in one of the first-person shooter games like Halo. On that level, it appeared to be more satisfying than, the, than most of the previous episodes this season. But hide-and-seek is filled with moments that want to convey a deeper meaning or emotional impact. Unfortunately, most of these events left us unmoved. We all knew last week that the season had been drawn down to three different challenges for the two remaining episodes. Stop the Borg Queen from assimilating the 21st century. Picard had to acknowledge some traumatic experience from his past that Q had initially identified. And the crew had to protect the Europa Europa mission so the original Federation-style 25th century would be restored. By the end of of the episode, two of these objectives have been accomplished. That leaves stopping Adam Sung and his mad quest for legacy until next week. Right. The reveal of Yvette Picard's suicide and John Luke's rejection of the truth, Rafi's admission of guilt for Elnor's death, and Seven's reintegration of Borg plants to save her life all should have mattered more than they did. But each one of them had had been telegraphed for weeks, so there was no surprise when we finally saw them played out. It felt as if someone was checking off a to-do list of plot threads that had to be concluded by the season's end. Each one of these emotional events could have been given greater importance if they hadn't been piled up on top of one another in a rush to get to the end. More specifically, Yvette Picard's suicide by hanging had been expected since Monsters, if not from the very beginning of the season. If this had been resolved in that episode, in Monsters, we could have had three episodes where Picard 
could have had the time to process what this meant instead of just receiving a hug from Talon as the cameras pulled in on his emotionless face. Right. We do wonder why an advance notice wasn't placed at the beginning of the episode for people who might have been triggered by the hanging. Such warnings are commonplace in TV today. Yeah, and that was kind of strange because... Yeah, usually they would put a warning. Yeah. You know, you're right. So that it wouldn't... Somebody would have known. I mean, if they're going to be flashing lights, people who are who, who have been stroke victims, they know that. Right. right. So, but um, I am curious about one thing, though. Why were there no better therapies or coping mechanisms available for Maurice Picard? Right. Why was locking a woman with mental illness away in her room the best form of treatment he could come up with? Why wasn't other options explored to handle the threat she posed to herself and to others than to closet her until she regained some level of control over herself? Treatment such as these would seem more appropriate in the 19th century than in the 24th. Yes. And if this was all the help Maurice could give his ailing wife, then maybe he wasn't completely blameless in the matter after all. Right, right, exactly. Moreover, the point this tragic death was supposed to make was totally lost on us. That young John Luke was the one who discovered his mother hung, this is presented as the explanation for adult John Luke's lack of deep, intimate relationships. But that doesn't track. That's because the initial clue to that problem was his inability uh, to kiss a Willie Laris. For the majority of this season, Laris hasn't been around, so we haven't had her presence creating this constant tension underneath Picard's journey to understand himself. Talon, who is played by the same actress in an attempt to make that connection, is a weak substitute because she doesn't have the shared life experiences with Picard. She is just a reflection in a mirror. And Gary, this is what I didn't understand. If they wanted to have a reason why Picard couldn't make these um, connections so that he would have... Uh, long-lasting intimate relationships, why couldn't they just use something from Patrick Stewart's own life that he has admitted? And that is that he loved his work so much that, you know, when his with his first marriage, he wasn't there for his family. And he readily admits that. And so why couldn't it be that John Luke also was so, you know, he has such a passion for, you know, these uh, travels to, the to you know, these new adventures and learning about new worlds that he didn't have time to maintain long-lasting relationships. You, you do know that Patrick Stewart is an executive producer on this show. Okay, he's an executive producer, but this is not something that he has not said himself. I understand that, but... They went and pitched the the story for season two to him before they began writing these scripts. So if that was something that 
he wanted in the scripts, it would have been there. I'm sorry, but this series, and I know this is going to upset some people, and I like Patrick Stewart a lot, but this series is exactly the way he wants it to be. And that's a shame. That's why his wife was in the background in that scene. That's why we had yet another scene with another rescue bulldog at the beginning of the series. My my point is, is that that would have made sense if you consider, you know, the series that, you know, uh, the way Picard is in TNG, right. the way he is in the films, he loves his work. Yes. I and understand. that's more important to I him. I you know, whereas this, this comes from nowhere. That, that This traumatic experience that he experienced with his mother. Right. Does not manifest himself. It's not connected to anything. anything. It's, just, it's just it's just some some kind of psychobabble that's kind of put up there to justify all the th- troubles he's had. And anyway, I'm but I've been done with this show most of the season, so I'm trying not to over emote about how I feel. So, but it's been disappointing. It's been very disappointing. Well, we'll move on to a different Yeah, subject. why don't we do that? Okay. Yeah. So outside of arguing with Rafi or searching for someone, the only thing 709 has done all season is recognize how different she feels and how others respond to her without Borg implants. It's something that she has enjoyed. Therefore, it was the only thing the writers could take away from her that would matter. So it wasn't surprising when saving her life Borgatti reintroduced the implants into her fully human body. It's just too bad that they didn't have enough imagination to have them manifest on her in a different way than it had before. Yeah, I mean, we don't need to have the piece over her eye or the thing underneath her ear on on the right side of her face, but... That's exactly what it is. And she's got the, the thing on her hand, too. So, anyway, all season long, Rafi has been tortured by the death of Elnor, which must be the primary reason he's been absent from the majority of this season. Feeling guilty for his death gave her something to do besides argue with Seven. That's too bad because it's reduced Rafi to a deeply needy and unstable person. Someone who could easily jeopardize the critical mission that she's on. What did this add to the story in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, so when we were first introduced to her last season, she was living alone, addicted to drugs and alcohol, and carrying resentment toward Picard for how his actions had cost her a successful career in Starfleet. At that time, she was on a razor's edge emotionally, Eventually, she would be pushed off by her son, her biological son, Gabe's rejection of her. So why did we need to see Rafi suffer again? Why did the writers think being tempted by her addictions again would show us something we didn't see the last time? What was gained by the actress, the character, or the show by all of this? In fact, if we took a moment to acknowledge the truth, Staring us in the face. Rafi, Picard, Seven, and Agnes Girardi are all emotionally compromised in some form or another, making Rios 
the only stable member of this crew when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, this season. This season. Yeah. This, I mean, he was a little he was a little off last season, season but yeah. he's been on the right track this one. And that's why he's going to choose to stay in 2024 with Dr. Teresa and Ricardo. Embracing love and meaning and living a meaningful life will prove to be much more important to him than returning to the Stargazer. Well, that's our prediction. Maybe Talon will be able to hook him up with a new identity and some credentials. And so he'll be able to do stuff. I mean, he likes the food. He likes the cigars. Right. He likes Dr. Teresa. He likes her kids. So what's not to like? (laughs) So now we're set up for the season finale. Picard and crew versus Adam Soon with the fate of the future at stake. I only wish Soon had been a more formidable opponent. I'm more curious about what they've written than how everything is going to play out. Such as what parts will Q, Guinan, or Corey play in the conclusion, if any? And after barely being mentioned, since two of one, Renee Picard is suddenly important again. Let's see how that works out. Yeah. So there's a lot to think about. Uh-huh. Really a lot to think about. Right. So let's move to bits and pieces. So our first bits and pieces, um, didn't it appear that soon special forces mercenaries were less effective after they were assimilated than before? For the most part, they didn't move until Hollow Elnor attacked them. Right. Okay. They couldn't even capture an mm-hmm. android with the body of a dialed down. Uh, um, 94 year old, 93 year old human. Right. Right. So what was that about? <laughs> I mean, they, they couldn't catch they up. They couldn't catch it. up to them. I mean, this yeah. he's not, he's playing a 93 year old man. Right. How could they not catch him? Yeah. And they were just. <laughs> In the hallways, they were never hiding. Right. They were truly never hiding. So why could they catch up with yeah, it? Yeah, it just kills me. Yes. Finally, um, Rafi 7 prepared themselves like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, expecting to die as they attempted a Hail Mary final sprint across an open field to the Chateau. But why did they worry? Even though they ran under constant firing, they got across without taking a single hit. So I guess they were wearing grade A plot armor. No joke. No joke. I don't even know why they had that line. I don't That know. they weren't going to make it. Like like they, they were not going to make it. I mean, right. they didn't even spring an ankle. No, they didn't even break a nail. <laughs> no. Is it us or does Adam Sue remind you of an old style Bond villain? Similar to Dr. No or Goldfinger. First, he spends most of his time telling you how brilliant he is. Then he proceeds to order his goons to kill Picard. Is anyone in the least bit frightened that he's going to pull the pull uh, the trigger and kill Picard and Talon? There's no way he's going to win this because he's shown complete ineptitude up to this point. Yes, yes, yes. So, so there's no... There's no sense of suspense in the none in the, whatsoever in the because these the the goons do not they they're standing around. Right. He says take care of them and they're and they're waiting. What are they waiting for? For reels to yeah, show up? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't okay. Know. Okay. 
So um, we have a few suggest observations about holograms. Oh, now. okay. Uh, holograms don't have to worry about being shot, right? Oh, that's right, because they're not real? Because they're not real. <laughs> so this was the case at the beginning of the season when we saw the Rios version of the ECH when he was fighting to protect um, Seven, right? Right, right. So why is Hollow Elnor ducking and dodging shots? Right, right. I mean, th- th- this is another thing that irritates me. This is the kind of logic leaps that they 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 set something up at the beginning and then they completely ignored by the end of the season right yeah exactly so why does hollow elder have this mobile emitter attached to him he's not leaving the ship so and he doesn't need it on the la serena so why does he even have it and and guess what borgatti just took off with la serena right so, so guess who's on that ship <laughs> that the, the program for that hologram, right, right. So he ain't with them. So the the, the mobile emitter doesn't even need to be there. Nope. I don't even know why. Well, never mind. Anyway. Okay. Also, Hollow Elnor wouldn't have any memories of real Elnor because there was no transfer of his mind to into anything. Right. This Las Arena is a creation of the Confederation. We agree with that, right? Right. Okay. So why would they have technology aboard that could transfer the memories of a dying person into the computers when they didn't even have technology to save a wounded man? Right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. They were searching all over the sick bay for something to he- try to heal Elnor at the beginning of the season, right. in the second episode. Right. And they couldn't find it. Right. Definitely. But that ship's got something that's going to transform your memories into so that that there's a hologram that knows how you felt at the end of your life. Right. And and especially the Confederation, they were the ones who thought that humans were the superior being. They wouldn't have this technology around that would recreate a human being with the memories and feelings of an alien. Right. Because we saw that. When the sense that they had in the confederations, they were your basic stripped down, right, you right. know, they were just servants. Right. They were just like the ones that we saw at the beginning of season one of Picard. Right. They were tools. They were smart tools, but they were tools. Right. So Seven tells a story that she was denied entry into Starfleet because she was Borg. But this would have happened after they had enlisted a Klingon. Right, Worf. And and this is during the time when they enlisted Worf, they were still at odds, you know, right, at war right. with Klingons. Exactly, you know, they didn't exactly. trust the Klingons. So during the uh, the time when she would have been petitioning for entry uh, to Starfleet, uh, they had also added a Ferengi cadet. Nog. And... Also, another former bug, Echip. Yeah, Borg. You mean Borg? Another Borg named Echip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if you want to make this plausible, then the only way you can do that would be to say that Seven, as Annika Hansen, had been a Borg longer, had been assimilated longer than Echip. And so what they may have been concerned about was how deep the assimilation had gone in her mind. Right. And right. would that be and would she be capable of being turned 
at any point in time if right. they confronted the board. Exactly. Now that would make sense. That their concern about that would make sense. Because if you look at the other three, Worf is raised by humans. So he is, to use the term, assimilated yep. into human federation behavior. Right. Nog, who through his friendship with Jake Sisko, is also assimilated. Yeah, That's why he wants to be. Yeah, he's, a, the, he's acculturated. He's enculturated. He wants to be in the in the Starfleet right. because he admires Captain Sisko and he admires what's, what the Federation has done. That's right. And so, yeah, he also is by. And, and when you think about Echeb, he was assimilated as a child and he was reintegrated on the Voyager as a, a little slightly older child. Right. And so the amount of time he had been assimilated by the Borg was less than what Seven was. But that's the only way you justify that. Right. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Right. Why they wouldn't, you know, have her, uh, you know, would at least let her into Starfleet. Right, right. Yeah. Now, you have a prediction about what you think might happen when... In, in the final the final season the final episode of this season, yeah. So my prediction is well, we had already talked about Rios that mm-hmm. we think that Rios is Rios ain't gonna, coming back, right? Rios, Rios, got, Rios got enough reasons to stay. Back. He got enough reasons to stay in. But I do feel that now that all you know that they're feeling like all is going to be forgiven. That since Rios is not coming back, that when we return to the twenty fifth century. That uh, seven is going to be the captain of Rios of the Stargazer of the Stargazer. Mm, okay, all right. That's my prediction. That's your prediction. I ain't mad at you. That's a bold <laughs> one. I'm I'm not mad at you. That would be the most obvious change that would occur. But I'm suspecting that they go back to the 25th century. It's not going to be exactly the way it was before. Well, yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm suspecting that. Potentially that could happen. So I'm, I'm, I'm betting on you in this one. Okay, time will tell. Time will tell. Okay, let's move on to Easter eggs. Season two of Picard continues to give us various callbacks and references. And I guess I will go with the first one. Since I've been knocking on holograms all day, let me knock on, <laughs> let me knock on one of the devices. Obviously, the infamous mobile emitter. The autonomous, self-sustaining mobile hollow emitter, or better known as mobile emitter, was a piece of 29th century technology designed to remotely power and enable a single holographic instance away from permanent holometers. Mm -hmm. So, for example, it was constructed of the polyduramic alloys unknown in the 24th century of the Federation. Right. And the mobile emitter was approximately the size of a human palm and the device was first introduced on Voyager in season three episode Futures in Part Two. Owned by Henry Starling in 1996, the emitter was either aboard the appropriated Aeon timeship that he captured or derived from 29th century technology therein. And Starling used the emitter to grant mobility to his captive, the doctor. When he pulled down all the computer information from the Voyager, he stole the EMH as well. Mm. Um, while the latter was displaced in time after being after he hacked the Voyager's computers. 
the doctor was um, after being returned to the 24th century by Captain Braxton, the USS Voyager was allowed to retain the mobility emitter, granting the doctor a newfound mobility and utility beyond the Voyager's sick bays and hollow decks, able to slip the emitter on and off relatively easily. And that was the beginning of how the show was ruined. <laughs> well, it wasn't completely ruined, but we did that. I, that was a mistake. And then, and then, what later, what else became a, a mistake was in the show's finale, uh, the series finale. He actually got married. Yeah, I mean that they would allow a hologram to marry. A person, you know, it's like, come on, a real person. There are a lot of really good episodes of Voyager, and I, I like. Yeah, Kath, there are. I like Kate Mulgrew's performance. I like I, Seven. I like. I, there's a lot. There's a lot to like about that show, but the thing I hate most about Voyager is how much they you Robert Picardo overtook and became the third most important character yes. in the story. Yes, and that how all of those stories were. Possible because of this damn thing. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, the, the hollow. And all of his stories were basically retreads of stories that they had done on Next Generation. With Data. With Data. Because yeah. it was it was us playing around with him as a real boy again. Yes. And it's yes. just like, you know, he's he's not real. He's a program. And he, this one doesn't even have a, 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 a synthetic body in which no. he exists. Nope. So for my Easter egg, I'm returning to the subject of John Luke's mother, Yvette. Hmm. After Picard's recollection of his mother's suicide, he tells Tylan he used to imagine his mother as an older lady who offered him tea and chat. The writers obviously provided this line to explain Yvette's appearance as an elderly woman in episode six of season one of The Next Generation's where no one has gone before. Here, Captain Picard meets an illusion of his mother, who is depicted as an elderly French lady, played by Herta Ware, before this vision is interrupted by Commander Will Riker. But Star Trek Picard now establishes that Yvette never made it to old age, and she hung herself when John Luke was still a young boy. According to John Archeola of ScreenRant.com is ultimately up to audiences to determine whether they accept Star Trek Picard's revisionist history of Yvette's death and John Luke's past. However, Yvette's suicide is now canon that overrides her appearance in the TNG season one episode. Personally, I am disappointed the writers chose to add such a traumatic revelation about Picard's mother in this series that seems unsupported by the way he conducted himself in TNG and its feature films. I am curious to see if the season finale will draw a connection between this revelation and the reason why he needed to uncover this wound at this time. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I know they wrote something about that. I'm not sure if it's going to make sense. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so let's move on to Star Trek news. And first up, let's talk about the Ready Room. The latest installment of the Ready Room began with a featurette on how Star Trek Strange New Worlds was developed over time. 
This was followed by an interview Will Wheaton conducted with Picard cast members Michelle Hurd and Evan Evagora. The episode ended with a featurette on the stunt work for Star Trek Picard, followed by a trailer for Strange New Worlds. Well, let me just keep talking about Strange New Worlds. You go right ahead, Adele. Okay. Hit it. Let's hit it up. So, as you know, I'm sure our listeners know, there's been a lot uh, that you can find on the internet uh, regarding Strange New Worlds because uh, the uh, series uh, premiere is going to be on Paramount Plus. When? Uh, May 5th. Good Lord, that's Thursday. <laughs> okay. Okay. According to IGN, the premiere of Strange New Worlds includes Canadian actor Adrian Holmes as Admiral Robert April, the previous captain of the USS Enterprise before Pike. Holmes is currently starring as Uncle Phil in Bel Air, the reboot of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Mm. Despite being one of Starfleet's most highly decorated captains, Robert April has previously only appeared in canon in a single episode of Star Trek, the animated series. April oversaw the USS Enterprise's construction and became its first captain. Star Trek Discovery confirmed that Pike was April's first officer aboard the Enterprise before April turned command over to his executive officer. According to the IGN report, April is the admiral who recruited Pike back into action to search for number one. Oh, so that's probably the voice we hear that he um, responds to when he gets a message from Starfleet. That's, that's right. Hmm, that's going to be interesting. That will be. Yeah, yeah. And if, as if we didn't have enough news about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, here's a third bit of information. This is the official Paramount Plus statement on Strange New Worlds streaming availability. Star Trek Strange New Worlds will stream exclusively on Paramount Plus in the U.S., Latin America, Australia, and the Nordics. The series will air on Bell Media's CTV sci-fi channel and stream on Crave in Canada with additional international availability to be announced at a later date. Now, TrekMovie.com has also reported that the series will be debuting in New Zealand on TVNZ May 5th with a premiere on Thursday at 7 p.m. In India, the series will also premiere that same day on the Voot Select channel. Strange New Worlds will arrive via Paramount Plus in select countries in Europe later this year, as well as in South Korea. The launch of Paramount Plus in the UK is expected this summer with a date ex expected to be announced in the near future. The US release will be followed later in this year by launches in Italy, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, and France. Paramount and Comcast are also launching a joint venture streaming service called Sky Showtime sometime in 2022 in other European markets. This service will also include Paramount Plus original series, but it hasn't been yet confirmed 
which, if any Star Trek shows, will be a part of it. Paramount had expressed plans to expand Paramount Plus into Africa, Asia, and the Middle East starting in 2023, but again, no firm dates have been revealed. We will provide updates on international release dates for Strange New Worlds as new information becomes available. Okay, let's now move on to something that's not Strange New Worlds related. <laughs> that's John Cho's novel. Fans may know him best as Ikaro Suru. Oh, Fans may know him best as Ikaru Sulu in the three alternate universe Star Trek feature films or as Harold in the Harold and Kumar franchise. However, there's another side to the actor John Cho. Recently, Cho published his first novel entitled Troublemaker. Written for young readers, the book is set against the backdrop of the 1992 Los Angeles uprising. It tells the story of a 12-year-old boy named Jordan, a middle schooler in Los Angeles, who is struggling to figure out who he really is. The son of a Korean immigrant who runs a local store, Jordan often feels torn between his parents' values and their praise of his standout older sister and his own more rebellious nature. Cho was recently featured as one of two Kore uh, Korean-American authors talking about their novels on the April 27, 2022 episode of the National Public Radio podcast, Code Switch. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or other streaming platforms. And speaking of books, there's a new Star Trek book. On September 27th, a new book, Star Trek The Art of Neville Page, will be published featuring the Star Trek creature design work of artist Neville Page. According to Daily Star Trek News, during a career spanning over 20 years, Page has applied his considerable expertise to the creation and development of the aliens in the Star Trek universe. From the movies Star Trek in 2009 through Star Trek Beyond in 2016, as well as the show Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard, his detailed and intricate work has yielded some of the franchise's most memorable characters. Featuring captivating concept art and detailed sketches, the book provides exclusive insight into Page's creative process. This is essential reading for Star Trek fans as it includes a vast collection of illustrations from his work. The book covers all aliens developed by Page for recent entries in the Star Trek franchise, including the Klingon redesign Yuck. and the Kelpians. <laughs> Although it is not available until the fall, the book can be pre-ordered via Amazon. And then finally in Star Trek news, we are very happy to announce an Emmy honor for LeVar Burton. Yes. According to Variety, Star Trek veteran LeVar Burton will be honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the first annual Children's and Family Emmy Awards to be held in December of this year. Burton has been a champion of literature for decades, from his long-run hosting and executive producing of Reading Rainbow to his hit podcast, LeVar Burton Reads, and everything in between, 
Burton has advocated for inclusion, education, and acceptance. On top of being an accomplished author and actor, Burton has won a Peabody Award, a Grammy, three NAACP Awards, and 13 and Emmy Awards throughout his career. All right. Now, that's that's saying much. Yeah. That's that, He's stepping in hot cotton. So this lifetime, <laughs> this lifetime Emmy Award is much... Is well deserved. Absolutely. I mean, and you, you couldn't go to a better guy. That's right. Yeah. So the hell with Jeopardy, right? I'm not even thinking about Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> neither, neither is anybody else. Yes. So at closing, we'll be back next week with our review of the season two finale for Star Trek Picard, as well as the premiere episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. But before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link to... Uh, Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. And we want to thank you for those people who actually have been doing that. We've seen the um, downloads increase and we've seen the a number of people across the actually the entire planet increase. So we want to say thank you again to those fans who have helped spread the word about this podcast. But until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, until Elon Musk owns both (laughs) (laughs) at Star Trek AOD at Facebook um, at facebook.com Star Trek AOD at our website Star Trek AOD.net where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon and interesting sidebar issues and other aspects of the show also email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper. Yeah.